we have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. Hi, I'm Ben Kantak and you're listening to Talking Australia, the podcast by Australian Geographic. Our guest today is Bradley Trevor Grieve, also known as BTG. Bradley was a paratrooper in the army before becoming a highly successful author who sold more than 30 million books worldwide. He's also a graduate of the Russian cosmonaut program, a Polynesian rocklifting champion, wildlife photographer, conservationist and cartoonist, and his brand new wildlife animation series, Adventure Beast, has just come out on Netflix. But most of all, he's a fantastic human being, and I can't wait to dive into the conversation with BTG on this episode of Talking Australia. Welcome, Bradley, or rather BTG. We clarify that up front, so I, I'm allowed to call you that. You can. You wow. and my mum, and that's it, Benny. Mate, it's, <laughs> lovely. it's lovely to be here. I'm a big fan of Australian Geographic. It's uh, a privilege to be on the podcast, and uh, I just love technology. I'm in the middle of Texas. You're back home in Australia, and we're making it happen. I'm very excited to be here. Yes, yes, and I'm glad you, you have time because, honestly, going through your Vita best-selling author, graduate of the Russian cosmonaut program, Polynesian rock lifting champion, wildlife photographer, conservationist, cartoonist, and so forth. But how do you have time? Do your days have 48 hours? Or how does that work? Like, you, How do you manage to pursue all these projects and take time to, to do a podcast interview? That's fantastic. Well, it, again, it just shows how highly I hold Australian Geographic, but also I have... Uh, <laughs> I used to be an elite combat soldier. You know, I was a paratrooper commander in the Australian Army, and now I'm the father of a toddler. So I haven't slept for 35 years, and, and that is my secret. Uh, I also spent a lot of time in hospital, and that's when I catch up on things. I read all the classics, all of Tolstoy, all of Proust, um, you know, all of Herman Melville. I read all those big doorstop novels, uh, getting my bones fixed. I've had 21 major surgeries from various accidents. I've had countless fractures, countless sutures, seven treatments for rabies, um, you know, and I was, you know, face raped by a giant bat, had my nipple torn off by a reindeer. And it's when I'm in hospital pajamas that I take time to relax. The rest of the time, I know that uh, we're a long time dead. I got to get it done. You know, there's something called a holiday. You don't have to injure yourself to take a break. You can just literally say, hey, I'm gone for two weeks and I'm just going to relax a little well, bit. Well, you know what's funny? This is my holiday. This <laughs> is it. We planned this trip nine, ten months ago, and we were waiting. Uh, we're based in the U.S. where COVID, unfortunately, is still rampant. Um, and we were waiting to see the numbers start to trend down. So we took all the precautions. We're double vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera. And we made our way to see my wife's family in Texas, which is where I am now. This is our first holiday in two years. And <laughs> I just get everything ready to get on the plane. And Netflix calls me and says, oh, by the way, we've decided to launch your show while you're on vacation. I'm like, <laughs> are, are, are you kidding me? And so, you know, I, that's why I'm not doing much media. I mean, I'll do, I'll do a tiny little bit 
I'm only speaking to people that I want to speak to because as soon as we finish, I'm back on, on a holiday with my family and enjoy. My little girl just loves spending time with her grandparents. They have this beautiful home with like two acres oh, uh, wow. of, of, of garden and yard and forest out the back, oak forest, and she is loving it. So we're having a lovely time here. And I'm just carving a little bit off the side to do a bit of promotion for this show because I'm so proud of it. Oh, okay. I'm glad you squeezed us into that. But um, to be honest, Texas is a pretty good place. I was positively surprised and how weird it can get once you get to Austin, to be honest. But it's just, it's, you know, it's so diverse in a way. And I didn't it's very, that. yeah, it's many different places. And that's America as well. It's not, yeah. it's not a homogenous entity. And the way that people have that misconception about the ocean, they think it's all one big blob of water. And in fact, mm. it's a series of, it's a series of constantly shifting platelets of different densities and salinity. That's America. Texas is Texas. It's a lot like rural Australia to a certain degree, same taste for beer and barbecue. Very easygoing, very, gen very, very hospitable, generous people. However, um, there are certain areas that are much more conservative than others. We're in San Antonio, which is a yeah. lot more easygoing and, and it's a lovely place to be. But yeah, you go somewhere like Dallas and it's big hair and open carry handguns. It's a strange, it's a strange system all to itself. Still lovely people. But that's that's Texas, Texas, as far as watching television is concerned. Yeah. But most of Texas is a lot more relaxed. They always treated me well. We come here. Well, before the pandemic, we would come here twice a year to see the grandparents. Uh, we haven't been for a while, but we've always had a, a, a lovely time. It's not like the movies. It's real people, but they are certainly unique. <laughs> <laughs> you can find unique characters all around the world. Um, you can. <laughs> but that brings me that brings me to, to one of the questions that I was dying to ask you, because you, you normally, you're based in L.A., um, mm -hmm. and I mean, well, the way, the way I, no, 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 no. Don't do that to me. I, I, I don't live in LA. That's right. You do not live in it. Your wife lives in LA and you live with your wife. That's how Correct. you put it. I that is that. exactly how I put it. I still, <laughs> I, I, I never left Tasmania. Yeah. I never left Tasmania, yeah. but, uh, look, coming to America was, uh, I, I came here on a sabbatical. I did yeah. some consulting and I ended up, ended up falling in love and find the love of my life. And for my sins, married in America. We have a beautiful two-year-old girl. We're expecting our second child now. Oh, congratulations. Um, thank you. Never planned to be here. Never yeah. planned to be here. And here I am. And, and it was both the easiest and the hardest decision ever, you know. And uh, But America's certainly been good to me. Um, do I miss home? Every day. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I miss the black green forests of Tasmania. I miss the ice cream blue of the Tasman Sea and the weird, strange creatures of the deep and the dark forests. I miss it all the time. But we love coming home. And obviously, with the pandemic, we're not able to get home. But, you know, we'll get back to our usual schedule in good order. And, you know, as they say, absence makes the heart grow fonder. But, yeah, I am not in L.A. Um, we are actually in the, in the Verdugo Mountains. But, yes. I am based in America. I own that. And uh, it's worked out well for me. Yeah. And probably one big difference is also the clean air of Tasmania. You must miss that being in a more smoggy place like that. Yeah. You know, it's absolutely. I mean, it's a great infested smog bubble. Um, I, I used to, when I came back and forth from Tassie to Los Angeles, I would get a eye, an eye infection every single time. I, I would get, uh, yeah, I would get uh, uh, an infection from the pollution. And uh, I was kind of sad. The first year I didn't get an eye infection, I realized that I'd acclimatized. Uh, and, and there's no insects. There's no insects. When you yeah. come to LA, you just, if you want to find, I'm, I'm a bit of a closet coleopterist, you're trying to find beetles and things. It's yeah. so hard to find unless you have uh, this, 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 this fruit tree of enormous fecundity that is just dripping with ripe fruit. 
it's very hard to find insects other than the odd mosquito and fly. And that to me, I, don't get me wrong, I have watched California, not just in the last 10, 12 years that I've been here, but over the last 30 years where I've been coming here for work, for publishing and, and television and film projects, I have watched the smog disappear thanks to the enormous commitment to their Clean Air Act here and the uh, advent of electric cars and so on and so forth and, and restriction on carbon emissions. Back when I used to come here, you couldn't see the mountains. I was I mean, just about to say, 14... it's not LA of the 90s anymore. It's not. not no, that, but you no. remember how it was. It yeah. was like pea soup and you would, you know, you wouldn't be yeah. able to see hard. And we're talking the Santa Monica's and the Verdugo's and the the, uh, the Sierra Madre's. We're talking mountains three times the size of Mount Kosciuszko and you couldn't see them because of the smog. Now it's, it's, it's actually pretty clear. Still filthy, but still, but quite clear, you know, but compared to Tasmania. I mean, that's the... That's the breath of Christ right over the <laughs> island. You know, it's straight from Antarctica. And then you have the cleanest rain as well. So, no, nothing nothing compares to that. And I would argue uh, immodestly that because I was born in Tasmania and I drew my first breath of Tasmanian air, it's a little bit like Achilles, you know, being dipped in the River Styx. You know, it's kind of kept me alive uh, all these years. Uh, but anyway. But, Is that the official yeah. state model, by the way? Breath of Christ? Welcome to Tasmania? It, it should be. Breath of Christ, <laughs> heaven on earth. You're welcome. You're welcome, world. <laughs> um, how, are you, how are you coping with, um, with being in such a hectic place? Um, I mean, you have such a strong connection to the natural world. How do you cope with that? Like, but what's your... What's your go-to? Mm. I mean, there's lots of beautiful nature around LA. You don't, sure. you know, you, like if you, you know, which, whichever direction you choose, you can find, you can strike gold. But right. um, what, what is your, what is your trick to, to cope with, with being in well, a place like that and be, having such a strong connection to the natural world? It's a good question. I have, I have two outlets. Um, and I would say more broadly, you don't leave Australia to go to the beach. You know, there's obviously yeah. we have some of the most extraordinary diversity in coastline and mangrove. You, you, you wouldn't, so the coast is covered in Australia and the beaches on California are all wildly overrated. The sand is a slurry of needles and gunk and I wouldn't go there. And the water is just, you know, it's disgusting. So I don't rate yeah. the coast, but I tell you what the West coast of America has that we do not have in Australia. And that is just epic mountains, epic mm. mountains. Yeah. So the go-to my, my, my short-term escape is uh, the Sierra Nevadas and they, so you can get up to Yosemite and, that's a huge park and there are other parks adjoining it. It's only about, uh, a, depending which way you go, because remember there are many different entrances Yes. and we're, yes. Com we're coming from the south, but you can either come from the south, the, uh, the, uh, the west or the east. And we generally do the south or the eastern side. The south approach is only three and a half hours from LA. And then the, and then the east approach is about five. And that is just exquisite, just mm. beautiful, interesting country. So the Sierras are a great short-term escape, and we love it up there. We often get up to uh, the Kern River and Kern Valley, make our way to the, um, oh, what's it called? Is it the Path of Giants? But just these enormous redwoods. Yes. And uh, yeah. these are highly uh, manicured parks. I mean, they're designed for people. America is basically one giant drive through so everything's designed to be easy. And yeah. that's good and bad, depending the situation you can always pull off the beaten track and do whatever you want to do hmm. when you have a little kid or, or whatever it's actually really great you can make it, it makes it quite easy but it's just a beautiful place to drive and do some walking uh, americans call all walking hiking which is hilarious um i'm a paratrooper so unless i'm carrying my own body weight in my pack it's hard for me to think of it as hiking i'm just <laughs> i'm just walking 
I have a sandwich in a bum bag that doesn't, <laughs> doesn't make me an explorer. Um, so that's my, that's that, that's our short term go to. And if anyone comes uh, to the coast, uh, to the West coast, go and see the mountains, get away from the beaches. Don't go to Malibu. Malibu is garbage. Um, Santa Monica is rubbish. Go to the Sierras because we don't have that in Australia. The mountains are very different in New Zealand. So if you come from Australasia, trust me, you will not be disappointed. And if you have a little bit of time, poke around, put out some, put out some trail cams at night. You'll be amazed what you see, not just the big stuff, you know, the, the black bears and the yeah. coyotes and, and so on, but these beautiful little newts, you know, all these arboreal newts live on the oak trees. They don't have any lungs. They're a lungless amphibian. They're just really interesting. Mm. They're violently carnivorous. Um, and they, and they, and they have this sort of peace treaty that exists. They go out and, and hunt and they'll just rip each other pieces and you find them because they heal very quickly. Their ability to, to regenerate tissue and even organs is astonishing, but they'll rip each other to pieces. And then they'll all just get under a wet shingle of bark and be friends again uh, while they're sleeping. And certainly during the dry season. So they're just these extraordinary little creatures. A lot of amphibians we don't have at home. Um, I really, I really enjoy that, but my biggest escape and one that sort of set me on a path to bring us to this show Adventure Beast, the seed of that was that I, I knew that when I met Amy, I knew she was the love of my life and I knew this was it. And I was determined to make it work. And so I made the commitment to sacrifice not going home. And I was very, very happy when she was there, but she had a, she worked for Walt Disney Company building there uh, hotels and resorts and restaurants. She's an architect. And so she would travel to Japan and to Hong Kong and France and just the other side of the country to Florida fairly frequently. And when she left Los Angeles, I was quite miserable because she was the reason I was there. And the rest of it was just too much. Yeah. You know, I, as a Tasmanian, you know, and someone who lived in a remote farm on the East coast of Tasmania for a long time, you know, I would go all summer, maybe seven people on my beach and five of those people are penguins. So you can imagine going from that yeah. to 20 something million. It's too much. It's too much. You know, yeah. just think of the, just think of the ratio of fecal particulate to fresh air that you breathe. <laughs> it's, Rather it's, not think of that. Yeah. But it's very, yeah. I, I got, you know, I, I won't yeah. say I was depressed because I know what depression is and this wasn't that, but I was definitely unhappy. Yeah. And I said, I've got to do something to address this. I can't be unhappy when my partner is not here, I have to find a way to love this place. Yeah. And the two things I came up with were one, work-wise, what can I do here that I can't do anywhere else in the world? And the answer is Hollywood. I can make television and film here that better than anywhere else, more access, I've got to go do that. So I started doing that and that got me excited. So that was a, a tremendous opportunity to take advantage of in this location, which made the location special. Yeah. And the other thing is, I said, what's something I've always wanted to do but never had access to it. And, and that was to study those giant Alaskan coastal brown bears. And so I said, to hell with it. I'm going to go and study giant Alaskan coastal brown bears. So whenever my, my partner, now my wife, would go on her projects for Disney one or two weeks at a time, I'd get on the plane, I'd get to Juneau, I'd get on a seaplane, I'd get to Angoon and Kutsnamu, and I would start tracking brown bears with the local Klingit hunters and, and taking photographs and making notes. And I did that year after year after year. And that was my salvation. So my Alaska escape became my Tasmania. Alaska is to me in America, what Tasmanian is to me in my heart. 
I can totally see that. And having, I haven't been to Alaska yet, but it's definitely on the bucket list. And I can totally see that that comparison is spot on because um, from everything I heard, everyone who was there said it's so, it's a different world, it's a different planet. And uh, that sounds like a really good escape. And you did not only track and photograph brown bears, you also uh, actually discovered a new subspecies. I thought that was fascinating. Tell us a little bit more about that. How did that happen? That's a very generous way of putting it. That's how Hollywood would put it. I think a more accurate way of saying it is that I provided the evidence that is currently being evaluated to identify a new subspecies. I propose that uh, some of the brown bears on Kutznawu, also known as Admiralty Island, within the Alexander Archipelago, have, and I've su supplied many, many different fresh samples of DNA to Dr. Charlotte Lindquist, who's the leading bear geneticist in the world, and she's at... Uh, the SUNY in Buffalo. Yeah. And we've, we've proved that the DNA of these bears, similar but different to other bears in the archipelago, often known as the ABC bears or the Sitka brown bear, so um, Ursus arctus sitkaensis, and we believe, we've proven that they're different. So we believe they should be called the Kutznawu brown bears, so Ursus arctus kutznawensis. But this is a difficult process to get I through. Bet. For those, yeah. you know, you don't just get to say, it's a bear, I've discovered it. And the reason I, I, I recoil a little bit at saying I discovered the species is the indigenous people have known of these huge bears for 10,000 years. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't, uh, you know, they told me about it. And when you listen to the, and I, you know, hold the, my Klingit, I'm, a, I'm formally adopted by the Klingit people, the Deshatan clan, and I treasure, it's one of the greatest honors of my life. And it's because of that, that I had access to other areas. You People haven't gone for four, 500 years. And so we're putting out camera traps and taking DNA in areas where no one's been for generations and generations and generations. So yeah. it was just this gift. Um, and when you listen to the indigenous stories, and it's very important to listen to them before you start your field work, you start to pick up all these clues. And they talk about this place that always has a big bear. Now we know that these large carnivores don't live, even in perfect conditions, don't live more than 20, 23, 24 yeah. years. Yeah. And, and normally 15, 16 is pretty average for a big bruiser because the beta bears are going to want to become the alpha bears. They're going to kill them and, and so on. So when you hear that they regard a bear that has lived forever or for a hundred years, even like my grandfather bear, my grandfather knew this bear and, and my father knew this bear. We know biologically it's not the same bear. Yeah. It cannot be. It's many bears. Yeah. And that's the thing. When you know that you go, okay, that means that they have been seeing these large bears in this area for many, many decades, if not centuries that is an important clue. So all you have to do then is go there and start looking to find some DNA and you'll see this connection to the past. But the interesting thing about this area is that during the last ice age, this area of Southeast Alaska was a great plains. You know, just before the ice age, it's incredible yeah. plains covered in megafauna, you know, giant herbivores and obviously giant carnivores. And then during the ice age, it became a refugia uh, bridging over into Russia. So we have this mass movement, which I think is a very interesting study I'd love to get involved in, of, of the, this movement of, of Eurasian bears from Eurasia into the Americas. But within this refugia, this colossal thing, that's twice the size of Texas, um, you have all these different species locked in together for almost 20,000 years. And so we had brown bears uh, and giant American uh, yeah. short-faced bears, Arctosimitus, 
and polar bears all in the same area. And it, it, so it's logical that some of them would have interbred. Like a massive Petri dish, you chuck it all in there and see what happens. Let's go. It, it, <laughs> it, it really was. You know, this got a great big flesh-eating furry orgy of giant carnivores. <laughs> and, and, so what, and then the ice melts and glaciers form and they slice up and scoop up these beautiful plains yeah. into a series of mountains that become islands as the water level raises and these things get stuck. And so now you have island, uh, you know, genetic, you have dwarfism and gigantism and you get these very interesting things. And the bears that could swim and had the additional fat move north and the ones that couldn't move south. And then you had ours, which are both. So we have a polar bear, brown bear hybrid from the ice age. But what was interesting is that the DNA showed there was a, an X factor that couldn't be compared to anything in the record. And, and now the hypothesis is that we have a giant uh, American short-faced bear in the mix. Yeah. We can't prove it. And so if we can't prove it, we can't claim it because there's nothing to compare it to. There's no uh, short-faced bear DNA that we can compare it to. Now I say that, but there was, an, there was a paper written in April of this year where in, uh, from a cave in Mexico that they're putting together the uh, I don't know if it's the same short-faced bear or a or a local yeah. subspecies yeah. Um, with environmental DNA, and they're going to create the the, the short-faced bear genome. So it's exciting Ooh. because if that happens, and I don't know if you've seen some of my photographs, but you look at some of these big Kutsumu bears, and they have this stranger, longer neck. The, the face isn't super short, but it's yeah. it's, a, it's a shortish face. Very long forelimbs, and of course, a few of them, uh, three that I've seen, have been at least um, 10 feet at the shoulder. What's that in meters? So, oh, a uh, lot, Huge. two and a half, you know, two and a half, half meters, yeah. two and a half, three meters, three and a half meters. I mean, these are massive bears. Wow, and uh, I know of three. The first one I saw that the Klingit called Shaysha, which in Klingit means blood mountain, he's a huge bear. And the way we do it is the rule of thumb in the field when you see a big bear, particularly a brown bear is the simple rule of thumb is the height from the top of the hump on the shoulder to the bottom of the ground times two is the bear standing up. And there are a, a, a number of them there all the time. And the indigenous people talk about them and see them. And all I did was take them seriously and put the cameras out and the DNA snags and get it done. But you know what? That's exactly what's missing sometimes. Someone with a platform sharing that knowledge that happened there. For, for thousands of years and these stories, you know, I feel like we're getting into that phase where we actually, you know, cherish that and those stories and, and that knowledge and, you know, try to spread this. And this, I think, yeah, good, to your point, it's very Hollywood to say you discovered it, but I think still it's important that people with a platform use it to share this knowledge. I mean, it's, it's fascinating what you, what you well, can find out there. I, I mean, I agree. And it's, it's, you know, again, that's lovely. You make me sound incredibly noble, but I just love doing it. I mean, it's just, <laughs> that's, this that's is name it. You needed to get out of LA and then this fell in your lap and you're like, Oh my God. It was just, and it was funny because the first year I was in Kutsnamu, no yeah. one spoke to me, no one spoke to me and uh, it was very funny. And then what happened was um, they found out that I was ex airborne. I was ex military. And they are very, they believe in martial service. So it's kind of a rite of passage that the men and women of the Klingit people, they want to serve in, in the army or the air force or whatever, or God help them, the Marines. And when they found that out, they took me seriously and the friendships developed. And then over many, many years. And then, yeah. as I said, the great honor was about four or five years in, I was adopted into the Deshutan clan and given a name and given a name. It's not like some nonsense, like dances with wolves. Yes. All in Klingit culture, 
all names must previously exist. And, and each name all is right. a story fragment. It's part of the oral history. So they give a sense of a, of a time or a place. So my name, Yaqayek, um, literally means raven by the pond. But in actual fact, it's a place name. It, it is an identifier of territory belonging to the Deshitan. So it's a particular place. Now, it's, it's the English name for the, this, this body of water is called Heidelberg Lake, and it's on Kutznawu. But obviously, that's not his Tlingit name. But it talks about the, the Deshitan people living by this lake and living by this body of water. And so all names uh, mean something. So when to be given a name is a great honor because you're now part of their timeless indigenous history, which is why it's so incredibly special. Yeah, I bet that must have been such a such a special moment for you. I can totally see that. Um, we want to talk about your show. I don't want to forget about that because it's amazing. It's called Adventure Beast, and it's uh, it's out on Netflix. And um, you know, apart from all your other endeavors and passion projects, you also worked on this fantastic animated series for Netflix <laughs> that just came out. Again, I don't know how you pull that off, but good good for you and good for us. For anyone out there who, who doesn't know what Adventure Beast is, it's a quirky show following three characters that experience wild adventures, and your character, and it finds the time in between to share fun facts about various animals. And uh, it's very funny, and it's um, it's part of the genre of adult animation series, and that's a huge success. I mean, there are lots of shows that have already gathered a cult following, and uh, I hope it, this is also going to be the case with your show. However, at first I had to get my head around it a bit. I said, because when I, when I think of educational animated series, I assume straight away that's for kids. But mm. Adventure Beast is targeted at adults or grown-ups or older people than little kids. What was the thought process behind targeting grown-ups? Well, first of all, I love that you imply that I'm in control of all of this, when in fact Netflix, the big red end is like a giant hovering god telling you what to do. So, <laughs> Don't um, crush my dream. Don't crush my dream. Just, just come on, full ownership. I, all right, I, I, I did everything. Um, <laughs> so I would say that the goal from the very beginning yes. was to try to move the needle, push the envelope in this wildlife space. We all have the, the beautiful, lavish BBC wildlife productions. We all know and love them with David Attenborough, Life on Earth. That's gorgeous. It's yes. like falling into a pre-Raphaelite painting. It's just the most beautiful, beautiful experience. And then you have the sort of, Rock'em Sock'em adventure stuff that I've done a lot of with Animal Planet and 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 uh, Discovery Channel, it's sort of wildlife adventure expeditions where we try to find something or show you something new. And uh, like for example, my series Little Giants, we traveled all around the world finding tiny animals with extraordinary abilities. I love doing that. Um, but you, in the in the animated space and in and in, in also for younger viewers in general. I just, this sort of cheesy Disney stuff, you know, that's, that's always heavily sanitized and doesn't mm. really tell you anything and animals don't die and no one has sex and, and nothing, everything's beautiful and all animals are perfect. And it's just not true, you know? And yeah. also there's a class of show that I absolutely hate. Uh, you get on YouTube or TikTok or whatever, where the guy goes, I'm going to find X. And then two minutes later, he finds X. Yeah. And it's just like, how did you, you know, yeah. and, and no one ever finds anything other than X. And that makes no sense to me. It's like <laughs> one of those Bigfoot shows. They literally just walk around in, the, in, you know, 10 meters off the road, farting in the forest for 10 weeks, and no one sees anything. I'm like, how did you not see a bear or yeah. owls yeah. or yeah. wood rats or yeah. something? You know, so my experience is that you spend a lot of time in the field, you see countless things that you weren't expecting. 
and you often don't find the thing you were looking for at all. Uh, you do if you spend enough time there. And but I wanted to get some. I wanted to do a show where we encapsulated the spirit of adventure and discovery, but it, it fused one of my passions, which is for comedy and humor. All my books, most of my books are very funny, even though they're about animals. I was inspired by Gerald Darrell, uh, you know, the great naturalist who was also the highest selling author in the world for a long time. His incredibly funny wildlife adventure books are really the singularity that inspired me to this day, you know, to this day. So comedy, wildlife, realism, but also crazy, funny, lots of energy. That's what we wanted to do. The audience level, we started with little kids. It got older and older as we added more themes like reproduction and yeah. so forth. Yeah. But this is not a show that's trying to be something that it isn't. There's no offensive language or anything like that. Your, your kids can watch this. It's really okay for all ages, but there will be death. Animals will eat other animals. Animals will have sex. Um, you know, Predators will hunt the babies of other animals, as yeah. is the case. Yes. Animals defecate, animals inseminate, animals bleed, animals salivate. All that's in there because it's real. And, and then we also wanted to have a way of showing people things graphically that would be almost impossible, either cost prohibitive or logistically prohibitive to film in live action. Yeah. And having made yeah. several series in the field and having spent many years in the field leading these expeditions, I can tell you it's so hard to mm. get the camera exactly at the right place at the right time. You know, you've got to have millions and millions and millions of dollars. People who watch those beautiful BBC shows don't realize you're looking yeah. at $8 million, $8 million. You're looking at $8 million for that special. And it was filmed over two, three years with about 20 different teams just doing one thing for a full season. I was just about to say those $8 million are mainly to buy time. Right, like that's that's it. You 100%. need to buy time to, buy to time. make the magic happen, and then you cut it down to one tiny scene, but that's revolutionary, and everyone goes bananas. Um, yeah, I, I I thought about that as well because I don't know anyone who does not like a really well produced, amazing nature documentary. But to your point, there are so many out there, and there are you know a few that are brilliant, and a lot that are yeah mediocre. Um, yeah. So I think it's also maybe a different way to, to get the hook in. Look, I think so. We were trying to, look, we're trying to do a triple threat show. We're trying to have something that makes you laugh, yeah. that makes, it surprises you, and also excites you about what's out there. And if you're a hardcore wildlife lover, fine, we got you, because you're going to want to see this, because we're going to show <laughs> you animals and behaviors that you've never seen on television before, yeah. because we can cheat, we can animate it. We don't have to. Yeah. yeah, wait for that one chance in 500 years to get this thing. We've got it. Yeah. So that's fun. Uh, we've also reframed it into areas that most shows don't address. You know, uh, animal courtship failures. Um, you know, uh, the fact that the majority of, of animal pairings are, at, you know, queer uh, by definition. Um, animals as epicures. Get, get away from the notion that animals are just stupid eating machines that will eat whatever. Just showing you how that they have these very specific dietary preferences and given time and safety, they become uh, actually quite gourmet in their, in their taste. We're showing how that one of the most heroic things you can do is, is have offspring. Offspring is basically a suicide attempt. I mean, it's one of the most extreme dangerous things you can do in the wild. You know, motherhood is, is potentially fatal in so many ways. And, um, You know, the nature of parasites uh, being positive and so many different things that we're getting a chance to address in a fun way. 
um, I think people are really going to enjoy that. But yeah, if you come for the biology, you're in for a treat because it's a, it's a rare smorgasbord of oddities. If you come for the comedy, I mean, it's just very, very, very funny. And using animation to get it across, is, it just makes it even crazier. So we had a ball. It's a funny, funny show. It's also a surprising show. And it's a very, uh, you know, zoologically and biologically accurate show. You know what? I thought about Douglas Adams' book, Last Chance to See. That tone, uh, that, that, tone that he strikes in that book, it's super informative. Yeah, no. You find out amazing things, but it's, exa it's also hilariously funny. It's so good. And it, it, it kind oh, of has that balance. No, no, I, 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 was, I, I thought that's, that's exactly what I could compare it to when I was reading that book. I was laughing and also felt enlightened at the same time, which is rare. <laughs> high praise, high praise. Well, I mean, that's... I mean, well, there's a couple of fun things about that. So that book, you know, obviously Douglas Adams and Mark uh, Cowardine, the, the zoologist, obviously loved Douglas Adams. I, I dedicated one of my books to his memory. Uh, here's a weird fact for you. I inherited all of Douglas Adams' suits when he died. What? Yeah. How did, how, excuse me. We have to elaborate on that. How did that happen? So Douglas Adams um, was, uh, his original publisher was the wonderfully brilliant uh, writer and editor, Nick Webb. And Nick Webb was the one who was listening to the original radio series and they said, this is hilarious. It should be a book. He approached Douglas and the rest, as they say. So Nick's wife, Sue Webb, is my British editor. Now, <laughs> what oh, cool. Nick and Douglas Adams and myself have in common is that we're all big, burly men. So we're all sort of six and a half feet tall and, and pushing 300 pounds, which in metric is what? We're all like 192, 193 centimeters and 120, 130 ki uh, kilograms. Big units, big as unit. they say here, yeah. Big, big, uh, big literary men is, is what we <laughs> And so when Douglas passed, all his beautiful suits were given to Nick. And then tragically, a few years later, Nick uh, suffered a heart attack and passed away. And then they were passed on to me. And we, we, we now jokingly refer it to refer it as the passing of the Raymond. And I have uh, already identified an Australian writer um, who uh, is 6'4 and, and, and about 115 kilograms. The suits will have to be taken in a little bit. If something terrible happens to, to me, uh, he, will get, <laughs> he will get the suits. But That's yeah, so I have, I, have, I have all his suits and jackets and... Uh, Look, I've kept them in perfect condition. They're all being properly cleaned and put away. I do wear uh, one linen suit in the summer occasionally, and it's just a special moment for me. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I have enormous admiration for Douglas Adams, uh, his passion for nature, how that informed his brilliant uh, humorous prose, and, of course, the strange adventures that he went on, not just with Mark Cowardine, but also, remember he tried to climb up Mount Kilimanjaro with an elephant oh, yes. rhino costume. That's and, right. Yes. Yeah. And he was not, I mean, he was a physical specimen, but he was not an athlete, you know. <laughs> no, and, no. And neither was mean. Nick Webb. I mean, I'm I'm you know, was a legitimate, you know, rugby player and uh, for the army and a wrecking machine. But he, but they're just big, gentle giants. So we're similar and different, but I take any comparison to Douglas Adams and his work with Mark Cowardine with as enormous praise. I, I actually got his book published. In Brazil, it wasn't published, and I, I had a lot of success in Brazil. And I said, "You publish it, I'll write the forward." So one of the great honors of my life in publishing was to write the forward 
to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is translated into Portuguese and, and by the wonderful comedian, uh, sorry, humorous uh, Louis Fernando. Uh, so it was, uh, yeah, small world, but, 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 that, but it is a small world. When you love books and you love wildlife and you love adventure, you come across other people like yourself and others, and we all end up knowing each other or someone who knows. And it's just, it's one of the things I love about it. But I tell you, what, I tell you another funny, weird story about knowing people. But uh, as I said, lifelong yeah. devotee of Gerald Darrell. Um, I didn't get the chance to meet him, sadly. He died in, I think, 97. I dedicated a book to him. The book that I did was uh, Priceless, The Vanishing Beauty of a Fragile Planet. And that was with the photographs of the National Geographic legend, Mitsuwaki Iwago of Japan. And then all the money was donated to uh, wildlife conservation through the Tronga Foundation. Anyway, uh, I went over to give copies to his widow, who's my good friend, Lee Durrell, at the annual general meeting of the Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust in Jersey, in the Channel Islands between England and France. So I'm at this nice little hotel, day before the meeting, and a black swan lands in a pond. And we're in St. Helier's, in, it's in Jersey, in the Channel Islands. Yeah. And I was... And I've been traveling for a long time. Yeah, and, yeah. And when you see something from home like that, it's just, oh, and you just feels good. And you, I was kind of excited and no one really <laughs> no appreciated why I was yeah. excited. Yeah. So I walk up to this sort of, this sort of reads, and I'm like, oh, no, 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 it's a black swan. This shouldn't be here. This is so special. This is not, uh, you know, this is not some sort of genetic abomination. You know, this is, this is not a melanistic uh, trumpeter swan. This is a black swan from Australia. Australasia, yeah, and the bastard just turns on me, hissing and flapping just straight <laughs> through, and I'm there in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt. So the next thing, I've got my 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 thong off, my flip flop, and I'm slapping this swan. <laughs> and who? Because because you know when you've dealt with these things before, you know okay. If I if I back off, it's only going to get worse. You know you you you've got to dish it out. So I, I'm here. I am slapping this swan with a flip flop, and this is a nice hotel, by the way. And, and John Cleese comes out. John Cleese comes out. It's like, what are you doing? And 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 turns out, and he's a life benefactor of Donald Trust. A friendship is formed, oh and because uh, that's the kind of thing that appeals to him. And the next thing you know, he <laughs> comes out to Australia and does a number of fundraising engagements for the Taronga Foundation. That's, I'm not saying that's why you get into wildlife conservation, but oh, when man. you do when you do wonderful, strange things, it leads to more wonderful, strange things, and that's one of the one of the aspects that I love about it. Through various injurious experiments, uh, you, experiences, you start to learn how to diffuse a situation. But I tell you, to everyone listening, if you ever get attacked by a swan or a goose, do not run. Uh, turn around. And 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 earn some respect. Otherwise, it's got you for life. Oh man, I remember getting bitten by a, by a goose as a kid on a farm. Mm, ouch! It's very ouch. Yes, I feel this is the perfect bridge to go um, into your conservational efforts. Was that something you were always passionate about from a very young age onwards, or did it just present itself as an opportunity for you later in life as an established and successful author? I mean, I loved animals you know, wildlife and wild places, but certainly animals from when I was a little boy, obviously. Yeah. And I mentioned my passion for Gerald Durrell. That happened when I was about 10 or 11. My mother was reading one of his famous books, laughing and laughing. And I was just like, what is it that's making her laugh so much? I had to know. Yeah. And so I read, 
I think it was one of his most popular books, My Family and Other Animals. Um, and it was the first adult book that I read that really made me laugh out loud. And, and of course, at that age, many aspects of the humor just completely over my head, but I still loved it. And I devoured all his books, wanted to be him. So I already had that inspiration from Gerald Doyle, that, that, that mix of humor and, and wildlife and adventure already had that and now if you look at my body of work it's I don't compare myself to Gerald Doral um, in, in the in a, in a specific critical sense but certainly in terms of thematically wildlife and humor that's my whole thing yeah yeah and then his conservation message I mean he was one of the great pioneers I mean you talk about there are various figures in the zoo world who were ahead of their time um, certainly Carl Hagenbeck uh, you know uh, he was ahead of his time in some respects um, also flawed but so was Gerald Durrell. From my hometown, by the way. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I'm, He's a hamburger? I'm from Hamburg. So there was something that we always learned that he was so ahead of his time. He was ahead of his time. Yeah. He was a, he, he was extraordinary. I mean, um, I, 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 you know, as I said, I, I don't want to get into his his failings. No. You know, no. And, but uh, but uh, let's focus on some of the things he did that was amazing. I mean, think about, uh, oh, the, it caught me off guard. The name has escaped me. But remember remember the, the, the Western discovery of the, the pygmy hippo? I mean, in no. Liberia, I want to say 1908 and 1912, two expeditions. It was a German filmmaker who was formerly a policeman, and Karl Hagenbeck paid him to capture the pygmy hippo. Do you remember this story? No, no. God, the name, the name will come to me. Okay, the name, the name will come to me. The point is, one of the British uh, civil servants had sent a skeleton back, and there was this big dispute. Everyone goes, "Oh no, it's just a baby hippo." Uh, it's not a it's not a separate species and and uh and Hagenbeck goes no 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 I think it is I think it is so he pays this uh as I said this former adventurer become a hunter became a hunting guy then became a filmmaker and a conservationist and he paid him to go looking for it and he and he ended up working with the indigenous people in Liberia at the time and they called it a pig and they called it the the Nigwe and the legend of the Nigwe was that it was this ferocious pig that would bite you in half and it carried a, a diamond in its mouth. And if you could catch this giant ferocious pig that could bite you in half, you would get the diamond. If you break down that story, what it yeah. tells you is that no one has ever done it. Uh, <laughs> so no one has one of these giant chomping pig diamonds. And, and that's it's very yeah. important to yeah. deconstruct folk tales and, and get to the essence of it. Yeah. But they say he's beyond fierce and you get that diamond. And but what was critical is they said when it when it is threatened, it runs into the forest. And that's when he knew it was a different species, mm. because if you've ever chased a hippo, it always goes back into the water. Yeah. So he went, oh, now that's interesting. So he started trying to trap it and he failed. And he came back empty handed and he was called a, a liar and a coward. He, he had sketches and he said, I found yeah. it. Yeah. But I went there to catch a hippo. I had all these nets for the water. I couldn't get it. Carl Hagenbeck backed him. He went back to Liberia. And this time he set a series of pit traps and he came back with, a, I don't know, half a dozen. Yeah. And it was astonishing and, uh, and, and, and shut up all the naysayers. Uh, but he did, it was a great story. So suddenly this thing that no one believed existed, existed. Now we know there were three different subspecies. Uh, all of which were extinct except for this one. One of them ended up being given by the uh, rubber magnate Firestone to Calvin Coolidge. Uh, his name was Billy. They gave him to Washington, D.C. Zoo. And yeah. every 
every pygmy hippo in North America shares a genetic descendancy from that animal. But anyway, that's Hagenbeck. That's Hagenbeck. Yeah, for yeah, yeah, yeah. Money where his mouth is and he gets it done. But General Darrell was like that too. He was ahead of his time and he believed in, in the zoo as a conservation resource. And there have been people since him who have refined that. And now we look at it as a modern conservation zoo as a vertically integrated uh, environmental resource. It's a fundraising mechanism. It's a research mechanism. Uh, it's a lot. It's an education mechanism. It's many different businesses. Yeah. And the best zoos are that. Well, Gerald Darrell was the one who brought that to the public mind in the West, uh, much even more built on what Hagenbeck did. Mm. But he went one step further, which is why I love him. He was the first big name to turn away from charismatic megafauna and say, oh, it's all pandas and polar bears and tigers. And he focused on what he called the LBJs, the little brown jobbies, the little, the little animals that no one cares about that are absolutely essential to an ecosystem. Yeah. And when they disappear, all the stuff that's big and exciting disappears. And he also created uh, like the special forces of conservation through his training school where like the Green Berets who work behind enemy lines, yeah. he, he trains these guys from their countries. He sends people there, trains them so that the locals continue the project after the outsiders leave, as opposed to the many conventional models who just throw money at teams from the US and Europe and wherever, yeah. Australia. They go in, they do, they disappear. And of course the project starts to decline if not fall over. But the Doral projects don't. They run them on a shoestring. The locals are trained just as well. And when they leave, it continues. And because of that, they've had some extraordinary results. And one that I happened to be involved in was in uh, Myanmar. And that was uh, a, a species of river turtle that was believed to be extinct. Uh, the uh, the uh, the Burmese uh, roof turtle, which in those days was Kachuga tributata, but now it's Badaga Badaga. But the point was, this is an animal that was believed to be extinct. And there were two shells in the British Museum, but a graduate of the Durrell uh, Wildlife Conservation School in Myanmar made a habit of visiting these temple ponds because the, the, the Buddhists believe that part of their pilgrimage is to, is to rescue an animal from, or to provide salvation to an animal. Yeah. And as a result, there's this whole ugly market where you buy a captive bird or something, and then you mm -hmm. let it go at the temple, but it can be a fish or a turtle. And so he had realized that sometimes these ponds became home to species that shouldn't be there. Oh. And he would check the ponds. And because he'd been educated by some of the best in the world, he went, that is an extinct turtle. And so we took those, it was two or three of them. I think there was one male and two females, maybe the reverse, it was a while ago. We didn't, and, and we built a small containment system out of a drinking trough in an elephant uh, facility <laughs> at, a, at a local uh, local farm. And now the TSA, which is based out of um, Fort Worth, and I'm proud to have been the International Conservation Program Ambassador to Fort Worth Zoo for many, many years. And the TSA and Rick Hudson went over there and built this facility and started meeting with local fishermen and their families and showing them pictures. And now they have a captive breeding program with hundreds of, of, of thriving hatchlings. Wow. All of that success of this weird little turtle that no one cares about, all of that yeah. comes, comes back to Joe Durrell. BTG, I thank you so much for taking the time and chatting to me, mate. And uh, for everyone out there uh, who forgot the title of the show because we talk about <laughs> so many different things, other things, it's called Adventure Beast and uh, it's on Netflix. You should definitely give that a try and, and check it out for yourselves. 
thank you so much for your time. It's it's a pleasure. Thank you for for your interest in my life and death so far. Thank you for supporting uh, Adventure Beasts and the wildlife community. It means a lot uh, to to have the support back home. I miss being home, um, my family and friends. And I would just say, in conclusion, the lovely thing about this is that there's no streaming imperialism. The show is available to everybody in the world, doesn't matter where you are, whether you're in Hobart, Tasmania or Timbuktu. And the general premise of the show, as I mentioned before, is that there's nothing in nature that's beautiful that isn't also ugly, nothing that is ugly that isn't also beautiful if you take the time to study it, and we celebrate that. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks for listening and see you next time.